We're lucky to have with us tonight Dr. John Carano, who is actually a new resident to Greenville, having moved here in the fall from Austin, Texas. That's why he's even got the boots um, to prove it. Um, he is a retired Army colonel. I accidentally said Air Force yesterday. Um, retired Army colonel, former professor of electrical engineering at West Point. He has a PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Texas. He's also a West Point grad. He um, spent time as a researcher at DARPA. He is an entrepreneur who are, was in charge of research at one company, but then he founded his own company, Paratus Diagnostics. Did I pronounce that right? Paratus. Paratus Diagnostics. Um, a, a firm that he founded that specializes in medical devices for point of care um, diagnostics, and which I believe he turned over right yes. in the last year or two. So we're lucky to have him here because he has a lot of experience. And he's going to be talking to us tonight about faith and reason and our religion and science at odds. So I'm looking forward to it. So thank you. All right. So um, good evening. I'm John Carano. Uh, thank you, uh, TJ. Um, the introduction was a little tedious, but I appreciate it, you know. <laughs> uh, so this is wonderful. Uh, I am particularly pleased to uh, have the opportunity to do this under the sponsorship of the Center for uh, evangelical Catholicism, because really the whole motivation of this talk is to evangelize ultimately to our neighbors about uh, science and religion and how those are anything but at odds. And that'll be sort of the theme of my talk for the rest of the evening. Okay? So I want to begin with some quotes, and some of these quotes you will find disturbing, so buckle in, strap in. Okay? These are not quotes from me. So the universe is pointless nothingness. Because we have a law, we know that everything in the universe came from nothing, making the notion of a creator irrelevant or at best superfluous. It's almost irresistible for humans to believe that we have some special relation in the universe, that human life is not just a farcical outcome of a chain of accidents, but that somehow we're built in from the beginning. It's very hard for us to realize that the entire Earth is, oh, is, is part of a tiny, uh, part of an overwhelmingly hostile universe. And the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. All right, here's one of my favorite quotes. Religion, they're talking about you, religion has a softening influence on the brain. Ooh. Uh, here's another good one. Men and women of faith, are spared the trouble of thinking when they live by religious dogma and strong ethical principles. God forbid we should have ethical principles. We are but a curious accident in a backwater of the universe. That's from the late Bertrand Russell, who was no dummy. By the way, all these quotes are from some of the most intelligent people on the planet. All right? Unfortunately, um, I note these quotes are not simply critical of people like us, people of faith, but they're downright ugly, nasty epithets. This is why it's so vitally important that we're all armed with sound arguments so that we may evangelize um, our faith in a world that is indeed growing hostile to religion. So to clarify a few points. This evening's discussion, and I absolutely want you to interject, interrupt, ask questions, lest you be doomed 
to an evening of listening to me drone on, uh, so please do that. But what we'll primarily focus on are a couple of topics in the broad tapestry of science and religion. Principally, I'll focus on the universe, the act of creation, the Catholic controversies, we'll get to those, and the meaning of the scientific method, and how secularists, secular materialists, are polluting and perverting science in the name of political ideology. So other interesting and compelling topics such as the brain and the mind, proof of God's existence, the language of God, dark matter, antimatter, dark energy, degenerate matter. What's that? Yep, there you go. Uh, uh, Deep-rooted role of the Catholic Church in the development of science over the centuries, near-death experiences, the miracles, on and on and on. Uh, I don't have time to talk about any of that tonight, so we'll save that for another, for another time. Those, those are all way beyond what we have time for. But I will, at the end of this talk, anchor the discussion with a modern issue that's very important to all of us and how we can use what hopefully we're learning from this little lecture uh, to do that evangelization. So let's begin with the big picture, and nothing is bigger than the universe. So how can we humans be so arrogant as to think that this cosmos exists just for our pleasure? So don't the authors of these quotes kind of have a point? Isn't the universe immense beyond comprehension? Aren't we really kind of insignificant in that big backdrop? I mean, really? So let's begin by tackling this big picture, and nothing is bigger than the universe. So actually, how big is the universe? Well, the generally accepted belief is the universe is about 13.7 billion years old. There are roughly 100 billion to a trillion galaxies, and there are about 100 billion to a trillion stars in each galaxy. So that means that there's something like 10 to the 22... or all the way to maybe 10 to the 24th stars in the universe. Now, if you're not a mathematician, a scientist, or engineer, you might be wondering what the heck that number means, okay? So 10 to the 24th is a trillion trillion, slightly larger than the national debt. It's a joke, it's a joke, it's a joke. We're getting there, though. Who knows? Maybe I should check the news. We might be there. All right. 10 to the 24th is a really big doggone number. A trillion, if you had a trillion of something, and then I repeated that a trillion times, that's about how many stars there are in the universe. Now, um, let's pretend for a moment. Uh, so I have some show and tell. You should always have show and tell. Always makes for a good lecture. So I have a bag of corn kernels. And uh, let's see. You know what? I don't want to pick on people in the front row because they always get picked on. So I'm going to pick on somebody in the back. All right. What I'd like to show you look like a kind gentleman. If you don't mind sifting through this bag of corn kernels, one of them has been painted red to represent our sun. The rest are just the other stars in the universe. So if you don't mind, you kind of try to speak a little Okay, so while he's doing that fun exercise, um, uh, so, so uh, clearly in that bag, there's not a trillion corn kernels in the bag, and there's certainly not a trillion trillion. But what if I told you I was going to do something absolutely insane? Fill up this entire room, floor to ceiling, the entire room. How you doing there, sir? We found the red one yet? Ah, oh, jeez. You know what? I, 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 I knew I was going to pick on somebody. It was too slow for this. Oh, my gosh. All right. 
Anyway, so no, he's having a hard time. There's only a few hundred corn kernels in there, right? And he's already having a hard time trying to find our little star. But if I fill... Somebody get this man a cookie. Get this man a cookie. If I fill up this entire room with those corn kernels, I probably would have about a trillion trillion, right? He's got the whole universe in his hands. All right. Uh, right? Would I have about a trillion trillion? Not even close. Not even close. In fact, to get to... 10 to the 24th, I would have to cover the entire continental United States to a depth of several miles with those corn kernels to represent the stars in the universe. Yet still, the one red one that the gentleman found <laughs> would somewhere be in that. That's absurd, right? So imagine you're in a remote Wheat field in western Kansas, you climb up to 40,000 feet where jets are normally flying, and all of a sudden, boom, there's the red corn kernel. You found our solar system. How random is that? What an accident that would be. It's an overwhelming number of corn kernels, and I find this. So Bertrand Russell, he's kind of right, right? We're an accident in a backwater, a remote place of the universe. Now, the problem with what I just did is I just finished defending a very a late, he's, he died in 1970, uh, an, a rather militant atheist, secular materialist, who most certainly doesn't believe in, in, in God. Uh, but I just finished pretty much proving that he's kind of right. Or did I? What did I leave out? I did something very, very wrong. I left something out. Everything I did said was true. It's just this yet more true things to be said. What did I forget? So I looked, so, so let's, let's, let me help out. So there are uh, some fundamental dimensions, right? Length is one of them. We live in a three-dimensional world. Length is one of the dimensions. But there are other di fundamental dimensions, like charge, electric charge, okay? What are other dimensions? Time. Huh? Time. Keep going with that. So what did I leave out? That's exactly right. What did I leave out? I left out time. And why does that matter? So, he's right. I left out time. And the reason that that, mount, that matters is because the universe had to develop. And, uh, and so, uh, there's this enormous number of stars. The universe is huge. But it took time for all of that to occur. Now, before I get into that, I'll tell you one more thing that's really kind of crazy. Imagine this is a cube of salt, sodium chloride, NaCl. There are more sodium and chlorine atoms in that one cube of salt than there are stars in the universe. Did you hear what I just said? There's more atoms in that than stars in the universe. That's a problem. Because it turns out this enormous range of sizes is an enormous problem for theoretical physicists who are trying to lump everything together in a grand theory of everything, a unified theory of everything. And complicating it even further is the fundamental forces of nature also span a ridiculous value. Gravity is very, very weak compared to electromagnetism, for example. So, we'll get to that a little bit later, but let's return to time. So, the modern theory of the origin of the universe is called the Big Bang Theory and was first proposed by a Catholic priest, 
from Belgium, Father Lamatra. Around the same time, Einstein was publishing his amazing theory of space-time, gravity, and relativity. In fact, Einstein befriended the priest and toured the scientific community with him on numerous occasions. We know from the Big Bang Theory that the entire universe uh, evolved, began from a single point, often called a singularity. Okay, fine, a singularity. And it took about 13.7 billion years to get to the universe that we see today. So let's perform what scientists call a Gedanken experiment or a thought experiment. So a Gedanken experiment doesn't involve instruments or measurements or fancy lab stuff or anything like that. It's all in our head. Einstein was a master of the Gedanken experiment. And he was notorious in a good way uh, for driving his colleagues nuts with these little brain teasers. So I'd like this for a moment to consider a more reasonably sized universe because clearly the one we just described is absurdly huge, right? Corn kernels covering the whole United States to a depth of several miles. It's absurd. All right, so how about we think about a universe that's about the size of a continent? That's more reasonable. We've seen continents on the globe, satellite images. We've flown across them maybe. So if such a universe were to exist, it would have only existed for a few milliseconds, thousandths of a second. That's all it took after the Big Bang to be that big. What about if it were the size of the solar system? Remember, solar system is huge. It took us a week to go to our moon. The New Horizons satellite uh, a few years ago made it out to Pluto, which, by the way, I think Pluto is still a planet. Okay? Right? Really makes me mad that these international knuckleheads said that it's now a dwarf planet. Come on. It's a planet. Anyway, the solar system is huge, but it would only take a couple of minutes after the Big Bang for the universe to have been that size. Okay, so you see where I'm headed with this. In order for the primordial dust and gases of the ancient universe to coalesce into stars and for those stars to form galaxies, we know that many billions of years were necessary. We also know that for the planets of our solar system to form, that those took billions of years. Our own Earth is believed to be about four and a half billion years old, most of which was just spent cooling off and forming an atmosphere and water, let alone any living organisms. Scientists believe that the likelihood of complex molecules like an amino acid forming on Earth is exceedingly small. It's possible, but it's small. So when the probability of something is very, very low, what it means is that we have to wait a really, really long time for such an occurrence. In other words, for the complexity of human life to evolve on Earth, it seems completely reasonable for 13.7 billion years to have passed. In fact, I think we should be surprised that man came along so quickly. So for the universe which God created and the laws which he designed, mankind is hardly an accident in a backwater of the universe. The universe needs to be this big to support our existence. It makes sense. It just makes sense. So while my principal point was to demonstrate that the size of the universe is actually quite reasonable, there's actually an ancillary point uh, to all of this. And that is that scientific facts, facts, can be easily used, misused, to obfuscate, confuse, beguile. My gosh, just listen to the news on things like the pandemic and 
global warming and pick, pick your favorite topic, okay? Um, so this is why you have to always be sus suspect of someone who says the science is settled. Very little in science is settled, other than the fact that the person making that claim is rather a bit of a poltroon. All right, back to the universe. It turns out that there are actually a lot of these sorts of coincidences, so much so that scientists and theologians often refer to them collectively as the anthropic coincidences. For example, the universe is expanding at just the right rate, any slower and it would collapse upon itself after a short period of time, any faster and it would rip all matter apart, making the formation of stars and galaxies essentially impossible. In scientific terms, we say that the curvature of space-time is indeed very flat, and that's a very fortuitous condition, very fortuitous. Our Earth also happens to be exactly the right size, much smaller, and the formation of an atmosphere would be very unlikely, much larger, and it would retain too much hydrogen, and that's bad. And we're just the right distance from a very reasonably sized star that our colleague here is holding in his hand. Everything, it turns out, depends on hydrogen which was one of the first elements to appear after the Big Bang. The ability of hydrogen to form deuterium, okay? Form deuterium. But deuterium molecules don't like to bond to each other. They don't like to stick together. It's only by way of this incredibly coincidental process known as the three alpha process, where for an infinitesimal period of time, when two deuterium model molecules bind together, a third one hits, and it forms what molecule? Anybody know? Deuterium has two protons. I now have a total of six. What, what molecule? What atom is that? Carbon. Carbon-12, right? Forms carbon-12. Carbon-12 has a resonant frequency that also allows for the efficient production of carbon-12 through this three-alpha process, which is another bizarre Coincidence that it just happens to be that way. Carbon matters to life as it is both metaphorically and literally the backbone of life. You and I were made of carbon, all right? Carbon bonds with itself in a very strong set of bonds called covalent bonds. Very, very powerful. Those bonds then allow for the concatenation, meaning carbon, big carbon like benzene rings, to all link up together. Well, that's necessary to form complicated molecules like an amino acid, which is the basis of proteins, or a nucleic acid, which is the basis of our genetic material, right? DNA. you got to have a big, complicated molecule. That kind of makes sense, right? It's not just a simple thing as salt. It's a really complicated molecule. So... Uh, that's a pretty crazy coincidence, this three alpha process. So yet another fortuitous coincidence is that the force of electromagnetism, it turns out, is much, much weaker, weaker than the strong nuclear force. Okay? So there are four fundamental forces of nature. Electromagnetism, gravity, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. Those are what we believe are the four fundamental forces of nature. Now, if I take a whole bunch of protons together, they all have what kind of charge on them? Positive. And the problem with sticking things of like charge together is what do they do? They want to repel. So I stick all these protons together. 
unbelievably close to each other. All right? Very, very close to each other. So what do they want to do? They all want to blow apart, but they don't. Why? Because the strong nuclear force overcomes that. Well, that's kind of fortuitous. That's kind of nice. And finally, this might seem rather odd, but it's a great fortune that our universe has three dimensions. With only two dimensions, I'm afraid we'd have no life forms, with the possible exception of Flat Stanley. <laughs> Those of you who in the audience who had school-age kids in the 90s know what I'm talking about with Flat Stanley. Uh, and a universe with four dimensions would not allow planets to orbit around their stars. Um, by the way, since we're talking about Flat Stanley, I have a couple of universes here. Hold on. So here is, uh, this is Flat Stanley's uh, universe. That's, Stan that's Stanley. That's his girlfriend, Flat Susie. Okay? okay? Why don't you hold the universe? You have the whole universe in your hands right there. Don't pop that, by the way. It could really be catastrophic. All right. So now, they're two-dimensional creatures, which means they only move around on this surface. They don't see up. They don't see in. They have no idea there's air inside the balloon. They don't know anything even about the thickness of this rubber right, that's on there. And they don't know that it's in a room right now. They don't know any of that. They only are two-dimensional creatures moving around. And so now, like our universe is expanding, and you might say to yourself, what the heck is the universe expanding into? Right? What is it? It's not expanding into anything. It just is. It's creating more space and time. I mean, it's nuts. But it's not so nuts, because here, here's Flat Stanley and Susie, after their universe expands. There they are. And now, Stan, who really has a crush on Susie, wants to go visit her. He's got a lot further to go, okay? He's got a lot further to go. Now, he has no idea how that happens. All he knows is that his universe just got bigger. He's a two-dimensional creature. We're three-dimensional creatures, and because of that, it's almost impossible for us to get our head around the idea that the universe is expanding, but it's not expanding into something else, okay? Think, so think, think of that, all right? You can keep the balloons. It's a gift. All right. All right. So now, um, so I'm going to end this part of the discussion with a quote from a guy named Stephen Barr, who's a uh, well-known astrophysicist. Um, he wrote a book, highly recommended, called Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. He's a devout Catholic and an astrophysics uh, professor. He says, one day we may have a more physical explanation of some of the relationships that now seem like genuine coincidences. For example, <clears throat> some of them may be subsumed as a consequence of a presently unformulated uni uh, unified theory, such as M-theory or superstring theory. Some of you have maybe heard of that, where scientists think there might be something like 9 to 13 dimensions. Right? Like, what does that even mean? Okay, nine to 13 dimensions. Um, he said, goes on to say, however, even if all the anthropic coincidences could be explained in this way, it would still be remarkable that the relationships dictated by physical theory happened also to be those propitious for life. Now, all of this seems to lead to the conclusion that it's very hard to believe all of this is just a freak accident. But the secular materialists and atheists, however, they argue we just happen to be in the universe with the right set of conditions. There you go. 
And I should tell you now that I'm guessing it's not something widely known by normal people that modern cosmology teaches that there are indeed multiple universes. All of you already know that. You know why you know that? Because Father Newman preached on it a couple of months ago. He preached his homily about the multiverse. Good time for everybody to be going up and down like this. <laughs> TJ's in the back with a notepad and paper there taking down names, okay? Uh, so you guys all know about multiple universes. But again, it's still pretty coincidental that this universe is designed so well for life. Not so, say the materialists. They evoke the concept of infinity to finally, in their minds, put a stake in the heart of the anthropic coincidences by claiming there are an infinite number of universes. We just happen to be in the one that can support life. How convenient. So, let's talk about infinity. And also another word we heard in the previous quotes, nothing. Infinity and nothing. So nothing and infinity are not numbers per se, but rather conceptual notions. Nothing means the absence of something, which is, of course, a completely useless definition. Go without eating for a week, and you'll get the idea of what nothing is down pretty quick. Okay? If you want to get an idea of what uh, infinity is, that might be a little tougher. So one astrophysicist said that if you had an infinite universe, if you had such a thing, that Kermit the Frog would be a real person somewhere in that universe. Yeah, I'm sorry. You should see the sun look on Chuck's face. Right? <laughs> Sherry, we'll let him down easy yeah. um, That was an awkward moment there. Okay, anyway. Um, so, so, uh, so somehow the atheists and secular materialists think they own these two words, nothing and infinity. Earlier we heard a quote from a current astrophysicist uh, a physics professor, that because of the modern law of Einsteinian gravity, we know we can get everything for nothing. Hmm. But for centuries, we Catholics have taught and believed that God made the heavens and earth and all that are in them from absolutely nothing. We don't teach that God was somehow lucky enough to have a nice little supply of amino acids and he could kind of hook things up and make life. No, that's not what we teach. We say he made it all from nothing. We say that God predates time. We don't think of him as first chronologically but rather he's the first mover or the first cause. In other words, as Catholics, we believe that even time had a beginning and needed to be created. This is precisely what modern science teaches now, exactly what it teaches. We believe that God created all things from absolutely nothing at all. We also believe that God is an infinite being. He's everywhere all the time. His powers are limitless. Another way of saying he has infinite energy. It strikes me as rather odd that atheist scientists find it somehow hard to believe in God, yet are okaying, okay with saying that there's a law of physics. Which, by the way, a law is something. A law is not nothing, right? A law is something. An equation is something. A number is something. The concept of nothing is something. Okay? <laughs> right? Right? So they, 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 they are okay with a law of physics that it proves everything could come from nothing. And yet these same people are happy to invoke the concept of an infinite number of universes, for which I will say there is no proof, just total speculation. But they can't get their arms around the idea of an infinite God. Now, my own speculation is that the atheist scientists and secular materialists refuse to consider the notion of a creator because such a belief comes with certain moral implications, whereas a belief in an all-powerful law is devoid of such inconveniences. This is why we find secular philosophy masquerading as science at odds with religion. We're not at odds with science. 
it's the masquerading of ideology that's at odds with religion. Ideology pretending to be science. So, on the other hand, I see no evidence today that the Catholic Church is at odds with science, although many would have you believe that's the case. So, so we have a situation today fraught with much animosity and even hatred of religion. This then gets extended by some, particularly secular materialists, who may well be respected scientists to be an outright attack on religion and specifically belief in God as outdated, naive, downright dim-witted. Richard Dawkins and Stephen, the late Stephen Hawking come to mind. Much of their viewpoint, by the way, is grounded in classical Marxist rhetoric and equally bankrupt analysis. But rather than focus on them, let's begin by recognizing something that I do believe is an incontrovertible fact. And I'm talking about the act of creation and the concept of a creator. And I want to say, I really want to emphasize that what I'm about to talk to here I think is very, very important when evangelizing. Okay? A lot of us want to say, look at the beauty in the world. Clearly, there's a, a loving God that's the designer of it. And I mentioned all these anthropic coincidences, right? So clearly, there's something to that. Don't go there. I know we believe that. That's not the way to debate this issue with someone who really, really is sort of antagonistic, okay? The way to start, the place to start is the act of creation. And in this context, I'm specifically referring to the metaphysical definition of creation, not the worldly. In our daily lives, we see all kinds of creations. Perhaps we've even made creations ourselves. We find them pleasing, useful, clever, maybe even stunning. But this is not the creation I'm talking about. In this talk, when I speak of creation, I'm specifically referring to the notion of something coming into existence out of absolutely nothing. Ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. This is not to be confused or conflated with our everyday commonplace use of the verb to create. Yes, da Vinci created the Mona Lisa. Michelangelo created the paintings of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. A brilliant team of scientists and engineers created all the equipment, technology to, send, to land man on the moon 50 years ago. But I'm not referring to creation in this sense. Rather, I'm referring to creation in the metaphysical sense. Metaphysics meaning beyond physics, outside of physics. So this is part of the heart of our evangelizing is to not get drug into this argument of science versus religion. Because our faith, right, creation, is outside of physics. There's no argument. There's no argument there. So as we pursue this topic, keep in mind that many centuries ago, St. Augustine actually addressed this very issue with his eloquent insights. He made clear that the Bible is not in any way a scientific accounting of the nature of the universe and all that's in it. St. Augustine went on to say that one should absolutely not expect, not expect to find a direct and simplistic concordance between the natural sciences and scripture. As one modern-day scientist and theologian aptly summarized the formulation by St. Thomas, the truths of the Christian religion can never contradict the truths of the natural sciences or vice versa. This is so because the very same God who revealed the truths of faith also created the universe in which the truths of science have their foundation. Truth cannot contradict truth. Doesn't make any logical sense. St. Augustine admonished us to recognize that if there ever appears to be a contradiction between faith and reason, then either we have an inadequate understanding of faith 
or a mistaken conception of science, perhaps even both. To further cement this point, in my left hand, I'm holding a science tech book. It's one of my favorites by Richard Feynman. This, there's three volumes. It's phenomenal. It's great. What does this tell me? This tries to explain things we observe in our natural surroundings. Here's, I'm holding the Bible. This is the story of salvation. It's not a science book. This tells us a whole lot about how things change in the world we observe. In fact, very, very much of science is the study of how things change. Okay? In fact, there's a very famous formula called the exponential, e to the x. That, that curve is hugely important because it helps to describe how things can change with space and time. Okay? And that's not what this book is about. The Bible is the story of salvation. There is, of course, a concordance between the two at some level. As St. John Paul the Great said in his massive encyclical on faith and reason, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth. Okay. So as I mentioned a moment ago, by the way, did anybody have any questions? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, Chuck. I had one that <clears throat> I want to take us back a little bit. Sure. Because uh, the expansion of the universe, uh, I have read that matter is, is accelerating. In other words, after the Big Bang, uh, the matter created by that is now accelerating and, and to me, that's counterintuitive because the energy behind that that initial explosion would propel that matter, but there's nothing there to accelerate it. It's not, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. So I wondered if is that something you can address? Yeah, sure. It's expanding uh, outwards, but it's slowing down. Well, um, so first of all, the Big Bang is actually not really an explosion. We like to think of it that way because uh, it kind of helps us to, to, to visualize it, all right? But it's really not an explosion like a, like a, 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 a tank round coming out of, a, of an M1 tank, okay? That's, that's not what's going on. Um, and all the matter and all the energy was there from the beginning, okay? Um, the whole issue that you're talking about is summed up in what's known as cosmic inflation, the inflation model. It's incredibly complex. But I'll tell you something you can do with a balloon. Okay? With a you can ruin an entire universe. Uh, so so if you take a balloon, especially if you get one of those long balloons like a hot dog, okay? Put put three dots, three dots on them. Have one dot kind of close in, then have another dot further away and then another dot that's further away, but, but sort of close to the other one. Blow that balloon up, and what you'll see is that this is what happened on a balloon. Exactly what's happening in the universe. The two dots that are further away move away from you faster than the dot that's closer in. The dot closer in is moving away. The other dots move away faster. This is cosmic inflation. I'm not sure I'm answering your question completely. I you're, I, it, go ahead. Yeah, I've heard the term cosmic inflation. But um, I, I think I, I think I understand it, what you're saying. 
it's extremely <laughs> difficult for us to comprehend because, again, like the Flax Stanley thing, as a three-dimensional creature, it's hard for us to get our arms around the idea of what is this universe expanding into? It's not, it's, it's there, um, it's just, it's, it's making more uh, of space and time, which again is really, really hard to, to get our heads, heads around. Um, so, but thank you, thank you for that. Any, any other questions? Yes, TJ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I heard, uh, but I heard a certain person, important person, say that inflation is just uh, because people are buying more stuff, and so that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? You haven't ever heard about too much money chasing too many, too few products? Uh, maybe, maybe that's an issue. Anyway, that's very good. Cosmic inflation. I like that. Uh, anyway, so. Um, so I mentioned a moment ago that uh, time also had a beginning. And this will sound familiar to us because we know the phrase in the beginning. And St. Augustine some 16 centuries ago grasped a complex idea of a beginning of time when he asked, what happened before God created the heavens and earth? Augustine noted that time itself was part of creation, stating there can be no time without creation. He further comprehended that there was no time before creation of the universe. You, O Lord, made that very time, and no time could pass before you made those times. But if there was no time before heaven and earth, why do they even ask, what did you do then? Now, for centuries, scientists believed the universe was infinite and eternal. Now we maybe kind of know a little bit better. We Christians also believe there will be a final judgment day, kind of consistent with the modern view of the cosmos and the Big Bang Theory, that... The universe will actually collapse upon itself. Luckily not for another 15 billion years, so we're good. We're all good right now. So let's talk a little bit about the church and science. Uh, and let me, let, maybe I'll just sum up one more thing about with, with creation. The, I think it's really important to not get dragged into this battle about trying to find an exact concordance between religious beliefs and scientific realities, if you, if you will. Uh, these anthropic coincidences are tempting to use them as a justification of, let's say, intelligent design. The problem with that is these words like intelligent design, they get corrupted by other groups like um, young earth creationists or something. I think the earth is 10,000 years old. And that's a little ridiculous, right? Don't go there. Just talk about the act of creation. Something came from nothing. God didn't create a change. Okay? There's not a change. I'm here, I moved to there, I just changed position. Now that's not the act of creation. The act of creation is that something, there was an, an origin out of absolutely nothing. That's metaphysics. That is beyond physics, beyond the natural sciences. So why are you, the atheist scientist, even arguing with me? We're literally in two different realms. There's no argument. Okay. They'll still argue anyway, but whatever. <laughs> All right. The fact of the matter is the Catholic Church, by the way, has been at the forefront of science throughout its entire history. And, and TJ actually talked about this, uh, what was it, Tuesday morning is when your lectures are, which are great, and, uh, I, and I would highly uh, recommend uh, everybody attending them. It was, it was wonderful. 
Um, and he was talking about the, uh, uh, the monasteries during the really period of the Dark Ages from the fall of Rome in 422 to kind of the Battle of Hastings, 1078, 1066. That's kind of the Dark Ages. And um, uh, the, the world was very antagonistic uh, toward, toward religion for sure, but also toward science. And the Catholic Church was really saved Western civilization. The Catholic Church in the 12th century created the modern university system, period. That's just a fact. Um, a principal emphasis of that curriculum was the concept of natural philosophy. In other words, reason and the scientific method. The Pontifical Academy of Sciences predates all other major scientific societies. The Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And when the science revolution exploded in the 17th century, it found itself debunking not Christian concept of faith, but rather the naturalistic concepts of Aristotle and the other greats of antiquity. So I kind of jumped into all this without really defining science. So let's take a quick step back uh, and, and very quickly define what science is. Science, this may come as, as, as a... As news, this may not be something you've heard before necessarily. Science is very much about probabilities. Certitude is rare in science, if at all. Interestingly, with the quantum revolution of one century ago, we now have compelling evidence that the universe is fundamentally stochastic, not deterministic. In other words, probabilities are built into the very workings of the universe. So when the world-famous American Physical Society, whose journals I've published in, and who I used to respect, says there's incontrovertible evidence. Get the word, incontrovertible. You hear somebody use that, you should immediately go, okay, you don't know what you're talking about. They said there's incontrovertible evidence for anthropogenic global warming. Now, there's all kinds of things that might be going on this way, that way, whatever. Okay, great. They're finding them incontrovertible? No, no. I just cringe. So, in fact, although we have compelling evidence that the universe is probabilistic, you'll notice I didn't say incontrovertible because we're constantly learning new things. I said a moment ago, theoretical physicists think they're, most of them think there's 11 dimensions. What does that mean? 11 dimensions? Right? Do you see them? Have you measured them? No. So if they're, if they're right, that means there's a lot of weird stuff out there that we don't know about yet. Okay? Alright? 11 dimensions? That's nuts. But it, it may prove to very well be true. Oh, by the way, three quarters, 73% of the universe, the energy and matter, we don't know where it is. We can't see it. Doesn't it bother you? I mean, it's like, it does now. It does now, right? You know, I mean, Chuck, you go up to your wife and say, honey, you know what? I thought we had our finances stored. We're like, there's like three quarters of our portfolio that's missing. Look at me. I mean, that's like a problem. So clearly there's new things we're going to learn. So you don't even hear me saying incontrovertible when I'm talking about something as, as really solidly proven as a quantum revolution. Okay. So, a more complete definition of science is that it's the pursuit of knowledge following the dialectical way. The ancient philosopher Thucydides, who uh, is often referred to as the, the father of scientific history, 
had many, many contributions, and Thucydides was the first to establish the importance of evidence-based analysis, devoid of ideological impurity. Think of how much you see that violated right now, today, right? Follow the science. Oh, I think what you meant to say was follow the political science, right? Right, the ideology, okay? He advocated for a healthy debate and discussion of any scientific postulates. So I, I, I can't bear to not mention this. So uh, I have worked for better part of 20 years with Tony Fauci's office, NIAC, National Institute of Allergies, Infectious Diseases. I don't know Tony personally, but I've worked with his most senior people. They have recruited me at least a dozen times over the past two decades as a subject matter expert. Their term, not mine, to come in and review their programs. It's usually a couple of weeks worth of effort. You get paid 200 bucks as an honorarium and they cover your travel. Why do I do it? Did it as a civic duty. Did it at least a dozen times. Okay, at least a dozen times. Yet we know that Fauci and Collins exchanged emails about a group of epidemiologists who produced something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which laid out their view of how to handle the pandemic. Collins and Fauci didn't say, oh, that's interesting, let's, let's pursue dialectics and have a debate. Let's call them in. Let's ask them tough-minded questions. Let's ask them for evidence. Let's have some of our folks who have a different point of view present their evidence. Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. What they said was, we need to take them out. What is this, what is this like Michael Corleone? <laughs> Father's not here, we're good. <laughs> I mean, come on. These guys, this is, this is terrible. This is, I don't care what you believe about the pandemic or any other topic, that's just not good, okay? Um, anyway, so debate, dialogue, tough-minded questioning. Um, one of the greats of the 20th century, Richard Feynman, his lectures on physics from Caltech, 1963, uh, he said that skepticism is at the heart of scientific progress. Sadly, today, we hear various ideologues using the word skeptic as an invective to impugn anybody that dares disagree with their position, right? You're a skeptic. You're a global warming skeptic. You're a this skeptic. You're a, you're a vaccine skeptic. You're a whatever skeptic. Really? Skepticism is good. That's what we do as scientists all the time. You're supposed to be skeptical. So, all right. Um, well, no talk on science and religion would be complete without talking about the incidents. And this will be the last main topic. And then I'm going to wrap up here. So hang in there. Grab a cookie if you want to get a cookie. Ask a question. Uh, tell me to sit down and shut up. That's fine, too. All right. So the controversies, and you know what I mean. If you ask somebody about the greatest conflicts between religion and science, they'll almost assuredly mention two things. What are they? Galileo. Who else? What else? Darwin. Right? Galileo and Darwin. Okay. So, here's how one atheist sums up the Galileo affair. This is incredible. What I'm about to read is complete, utter tripe. Total propaganda. There's not a word of it that's true. Here's what he said. The defining moment in the history of science was the confrontation between Galileo and the Roman Inquisition. In this episode, science and religion stood revealed in their truest and purest colors. It was the decisive contest between two approaches to the world, the scientific and the religious. And religion lost. Its defeat proved 
the hollowness of religious authority claim to special knowledge about the world. Again, this is complete egregious fabrication, and the guy that wrote that knew better. He knew it. So first of all, the Galileo Affair occurred 400 years ago. Yet atheists talk about it like it's yesterday. I feel like I'm looking at a, a headline from the spoof newspaper, The Onion. You know, Queen Elizabeth pregnant with alien twins again. <laughs> really? You know, except now it's Pope Francis denies Galileo parole again. I mean, really? 400 years ago? Okay, fine. I'll go with it. We'll go back 400 years ago. What happened with Galileo? Well, first of all, the role of church in society was totally different than it is now. But nevertheless, any objective reading of the argument between Galileo and the church must lead one to conclude that the Vatican, and specifically Pope Urban VIII, acted improperly and wrongly, period. However, it's utter nonsense, banal babbling by atheists, that the Galileo affair proves the church is antagonistic to science. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's complete nonsense. In some ways, it is very correct to say Catholicism saved science from the pagans and the barbarians, paving the way for faith and reason to exist in harmony. There's a rich history from the Dark Ages supporting my assertion that the Catholic Church was a great advocate of science and reason, despite a very, very hostile secular world. But again, we don't have time for that. Likewise, trying to unravel all the complexity of the interaction of the church and Galileo goes beyond the time we have here. But this affair had little to do with faith and religion. At its essence, it was a personality struggle between two difficult and rather vain men, Urban VIII and Galileo. Okay? Also, at no time was the debate, this is important, at no time was the debate about faith and reason, science and religion, no. Recall the issue was whether the geocentric model of the solar system advanced by Aristotle, a smart pagan, but a pagan, okay, was the more credible case than the heliocentric model advanced by Copernicus, who was a lifelong and faithful Catholic, I add. In fact, some in history, TJ, you probably know this much better than I do. He was like a canon of the church, even, Copernicus. He had minor orders. He was okay, like minor orders. Okay, that's a lot more than I have, so as far as I'm concerned, he's an important guy in the church, okay? <laughs> uh, so, both of these models are purely naturalistic models. There was no supernaturalism at play. Indeed, we know numerous refinements of the heliocentric model were needed to truly explain carefully observed measurements. And we know that Galileo's explanation of the periodicity of the tides was wrong. Okay, the guy made a mistake. Okay, fine. All right? But that's what was really being argued about. It wasn't science and religion. Still, we must address why Galileo got called to Rome, ultimately placed on house arrest. In fact, Galileo had a decades-old strong relationship with the church, including its highest clergyman. The famous Jesuit astronomers, so the best astronomers in the Middle Ages, were Catholic priests, the Jesuits. They were huge supporters of Galileo and Copernicus. Galileo was praised by popes and cardinals, and he likewise he praised on the Catholic Church. So what went wrong? Simply put, it was a failure of our weak human nature. A combination of the very jealous colleague of Galileo, a secular scientist, not a clergyman, okay? Right? And oh, by the way, why was this guy, why was this guy, um, what do you call it, envious of uh, Galileo? Because the church is kind of like the, like what the NIH or the DOD is today. The DOD and the NIH, they're the 800-pound gorillas in funding, grant funding. Well, that's what the church did. The church was the patron. 
Where do you think all the money was coming from? So this other scientist, who was envious of Galileo, is a secular guy, conspired with a rather mean-spirited priest by the name of Cassini to defame Galileo. Cassini was later denounced by his own brother. Okay, he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. And so, in the end, what really happened was that Galileo defied Pope Urban by publishing his manuscript, claiming definitive proof that the sun was at the center of the solar system. This placed Urban in an awkward position, trying to explain a certain passage from the Old Testament, from Joshua, where God commands the sun to stand still. And some people interpreted that to mean, oh, well, the sun must be going around the earth. Yeah, come on. So, uh, so basically, Urban is ticked off because Galileo said, I don't care, you know, even though you've been giving me all this money, I'm going to go publish my findings anyway. When I was at DARPA, which is one of the biggest funding agencies in the United States, I ran a number of programs. One of the programs I ran had to do with biodefense, bioterrorism. In 2001, 2002, bioterrorism was a really big deal. Remember the anthrax attacks? Okay. I was accountable to the American people and ultimately to the Secretary of Defense, who gave me that little medal there for the work I did on bioterrorism. I was accountable for this program. I had Yale University as one of my performers. Yale wanted to publish a paper. I told them I don't want you to publish a paper. They told me to go to you know where. I said, no, that's a real problem. Because uh, this, I believe, my judgment is that it will harm national security. They said, we're an academic institution. We publish things. We don't really care what you say. So I went up to New Haven, and I meet with the Yale people. There's like 20 of these people. I can't they just get nothing to do, right? There's 20 of these monkey mucks in this room. And I'm sitting there, and they're all lecturing me about, yeah. And I said, look, you're not going to publish a paper. They said, oh, we'll publish this paper. They said, oh, okay, then we're done. I collected my papers. I walked out. And as I'm walking out, I said, oh, by the way, your contract's canceled. Immediately. Effective right now. Gone. You're out. Publish whatever you want. You can all go there. You know where. I walk out the door. One of the provosts comes running after me. Oh, please, no, I said, forget it, you're done, you're, you're, you're out. This is nothing unusual, right? Urban was mad, he was the funder, and Galileo published when Urban told him not to. Okay, all right, whatever. It's unfortunate, but what happened to Galileo, actually? So, it's interesting, Galileo, by the way, was never tortured or maltreated, which is what Stephen Hawking actually claimed was the case. Galileo was placed on house arrest. He and his, his valet lived in a five-room apartment overlooking the Vatican Gardens. Bent my dog tags and sent me. And, one of the, and a chef of one of the cardinals prepared all their meals. Oh, yeah, he was in a dungeon, chained up. What nonsense. Okay. So, uh, what about Darwin? Darwin, Darwin, Darwin. Uh, Darwin, you know, when you claim that human beings evolved from apes, you're going to get some attention, right? Right? I mean, you're going to get attention. Now, I grew up with two older brothers, so I personally find the conclusion that we evolved from apes to be pretty boring. It's kind of pretty obvious to me. Um, <laughs> it's a cheap shot, I know. Cheap shot. Uh, but Darwin is seen by atheists as the nail in the coffin of religion. By the way, if you go back and look in the, uh, what is it, 1923 or so, the Scopes trial, the Scopes Monkey Trial had nothing to do with the Catholic Church. Not a single thing. The Catholic Church has never made any kind of statement about evolution, other than there's a lot of evidence to suggest that some of these processes are real. 
By the way, in the case of Galileo, it was the Jesuit astronomers who definitively confirmed all of Galileo's findings that proved the Copernican model was correct, the heliocentric model was correct. And so Urban's little proclamation was quickly dismissed and forgotten. It's of no significance, despite that earlier quote that says, science and religion stood face to face and religion lost. This is completely made up nonsense, okay? So now, with Darwin, uh, atheists love it because, uh, as one of them commented, it was discovery by Darwin that biological structure could arise without design that made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Hmm. It would be silly and frankly wrong to ignore the important contributions of Darwin. It would be wrong to ignore that random mutation, adaptation, and natural selection does occur despite many gaps in our, our understanding. By the way, random mutation, what is that talking about? Anybody know? What's the random mutation? Specifically, what is it? What's the random mutation? What's getting mutated? Gene sequences. Gene sequences. DNA. DNA, whoa, 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 wait a second. DNA has nothing to do with evolution, okay? It's a molecule. Oh, where did it come from? Aha, oh, that's a problem. <laughs> whatever that is, whatever DNA is, it's got nothing to do with Darwin. Okay, anyway, so, so, um, but the, the theory of evolution, so, so there's a lot there, there's gaps, okay, fine, but the theory of evolution is hardly, in my opinion, the greatest achievement of all time. It's not even close. To cut to the chase, I believe the greatest scientific achievement occurred in the early 20th century when Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, Dirac, de Broglie, all of these guys came up with quantum gravity, quantum mechanics. That's the greatest achievement, okay? That's the greatest achievement. Um, in the case of Darwin... What he really did was he discovered one subset of the stochastic or probabilistic nature of the universe. And that subset was how biological things can change, okay? Just like physical things can change. And, and, and that is, again, built into our universe is the stochastic nature, okay? So... Darwin, by the way, tried to come up with a scientific model of his observations, which he called pangenesis, which is simply not correct. It's complete nonsense. Interestingly, interestingly, yet another seminal contribution by the Catholic Church to the body of scientific knowledge occurred in the field of genetics, which today is nearly universally referred to as Mendelian genetics, although probably the woke culture is getting rid of Mendel, you know, from the biology books. Uh, Mendel was a Catholic priest, Gregor Mendel. He created the correct model used today for inheritance. His publications came two years prior to Darwin, and both of them worked without knowledge of the other. Okay? You are not going to hear too many atheists mentioning Mendel. All right? They'll talk about Darwin all day. I would argue that Mendelian genetics has had been the most significant contributor to the advancement of medicine and biology of all time. Yet, if you listen to the media, they'll tell you it's all about evolution. That's just not true. Our understanding of the fundamentals of molecular biology would not exist without Mendel's model of genetics. Vaccines, drugs, diagnostics are all totally dependent on molecular biology and genetics. Yet some wish to claim Darwin's theory of evolution is the most profound impact on medicine and biology, and I just don't see how that could be, uh, how that can be true. So, faith... 
Christianity, most specifically the Catholic Church, have given us the basis for scientific open-mindedness. Indeed, many seemingly scientific theories and laws have been shattered over the past few centuries. Interestingly, these bogus laws were overturned by concepts with I and others with far greater capability have their roots in faith. Amazingly, we still have no shortage of intelligent, intolerant atheists who proclaim things such as religion is the fruit of ignorance. Ignorance people, because they don't know how the world really works or the true causes of things, have always had recourse to explanations based on mythical things and occult forces. I had no idea we were in the business of occult forces. <laughs> Woo. So the Catholic Church has consistently held that there must be harmony between science and religion because we know that faith and reason are gifts from God. As John Paul II said, science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. And the false absolutes, John Paul II is so spot on because you hear these incontrovertible. The science is settled. My data is indisputable. I, read, I literally read a journal paper recently. I can't believe they published it. The opening was, our data is indisputable. Wow. I didn't think anybody was that arrogant. You've got to be kidding me. Um, so, let's, uh, I want to wrap up here because it's going a little bit longer than I had um, expected. Um, so, I... Uh, this this issue of determinism. Let me let me talk about that, and then I'm going to end with a uh, with a um, a very uh, uh, a topic very near and dear to our hearts right now. So um, this whole business business of determinism is what everybody thought was reality till Einstein came along, and Einstein shattered all that along with um, his colleagues in quantum mechanics and demonstrated that things were probabilistic. It's just a bit of luck that for what we observe in our everyday lives, that we seem to be able to make some perfect calculations. For example, if you do all the geometry and mechanics correctly, we can seemingly tell with certainty that the eight ball goes in the side pocket, so to speak. But even pool balls have a probability density function or wave packet associated with them that tells us the eight ball could actually end up in the corner pocket. In fact, I had to do that calculation up on a whiteboard or a blackboard. I guess it was a blackboard back then in front of my dissertation committee. They said, go prove that. I'm like, oh, thanks a lot, guys. That's terrific. Uh, no, I'm, not, I'm actually not kidding. So it's a really, really tiny chance, but it's still a chance. Now, what happened to my, my salt cube? Here it is. When you get down to this level, all of a sudden, that probabilistic nature, the wave packets, the probability density functions, are hugely important. So I spent the early part of my scientific career doing semiconductor device physics. I've built all kinds of semiconductor devices. They're micro, sub-microscopic, right? But they behave in a, in a kind of a, we, we, can, we can work out the quantum mechanics and get the thing to do what the quantum mechanics kind of said it was going to do. It's like crazy. It's like, wow, that is so cool. So quantum mechanics at this tiny level doesn't just exist, but you wouldn't have a computer without it. All right? That's how your computer works. Your computer works because of quantum mechanics. Without quantum mechanics, there'd be no computer, right? You wouldn't have this. Actually, it might be a blessing in disguise, but that's a different story. All right. By the way, there's something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. It's an equation. It's two equations. The Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle is one of the most famous scientific equations, and it's called uncertainty. Remember what I said a little while ago? 
Certitude is rare in science. And so when people start talking like, we know how the world really works, the rest of you Catholics don't really know because you're too dim-witted, nonsense, okay? The Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle says we can never perfectly calculate the velocity and the position of something at the same time. This was crazy. But Einstein, de Broglie, and the rest finally figured out that this was actually true. So here we are. Let's get, I'm at the end. Here's the modern topic that I want to talk about to end this. So this is about evangelizing and um, being armed with powerful, compelling, and intellectually honest arguments when advancing uh, this important topic with, with others, and some of whom may have sincere and genuine doubts about how science and religion come together. Okay, we want to talk to people like that and show them there's not a conflict. There's a, there really is a concordance, and here's why. It makes sense. So, so let's pick a topic. Now, I could pick the pandemic, or I could pick climate change, global warming. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because both of those topics are inherently very, very complex. And part of what has polluted our, our discussion in the media is the fact that these are in horrifically complicated topics that people love to use little sound bites for. You know, you're vaxxed, you're not vaxxed, you're this, you're, you know, it's warming, it's not where you're a skeptic, you're an alarmist. Complicated topics. They deserve a lot of study. Let's not talk about that. So I'm going to pick a topic that's unbelievably simple. I would say this topic is the most divisive issue in America. I would say this topic drives American politics. What am I talking about? Abortion. Abortion is really simple. Really, really simple, guys. Real simple. Why is that? Why can I tackle this topic? Well, because science and medicine have understood the process of sexual reproduction for a very long time. And we have modern genetics. Mendel's genetics. Mendel's genetics makes very clear the nature of new life. We know the unborn baby has a human genome. It's not a gecko. It's not a hedgehog. It's a human, okay? We know from the HAPMAT study, the haplotype study, it's genome. We know the whole thing. We know that its genetic code is unique. It's not just a human, it's a unique human. We also know the process of uh, meiosis quite well. Uh, just look at any textbook on molecular biology. We understand the formation of a zygote cell from a male and female gamete cells fusing together. Um, we know all of that. The word fetus, by the way, I love how pro-abortion people love to use the word fetus. Because I think it's like scar tissue. You know, I said to most, so when you fall down, do you, look, do you get up and, say, and tell your friend, oh my gosh, I fell and I suffered contusions, abrasions, and lacerations. No, you say, man, I got bruised and cut. But they want to use fetus. Anybody know what the word fetus comes from? Comes from the Latin. What does it mean? What does the word fetus mean? It means the bringing forth of new life. Oh, indeed. I told that to some pro-abortion protesters one time. They didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> they didn't like that at all. It's the bringing forth of new life. Okay, and we understand how that happens. It brings forth new life until it's terminated in the homicidal act of abortion, period, period. To state otherwise is simply intellectually and scientifically dishonest. Now, when we talk about controversies, I don't need to go back four centuries. I can go back four months 
to the President of the United States of America proclaiming that life does not begin at conception. Thank you, Joe. Really? When in the hell does it begin, Joe? Any ideas on that? He didn't say, and nobody asked him. He just said it doesn't begin at conception. That's a ludicrous statement. Now, if he presented evidence-based data, I have 12 publications, 50 publications, I have this guy, that guy, boom, 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 here's all this information, let's have a debate about it, it would be a different story. That's not what he said. He just proclaims life doesn't begin at conception, even though we have an overwhelming amount of data, of decades and decades worth of data, that absolutely says life begins at conception. Period. 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 End of, end of discussion. So what he's really highlighting is some abject ignorance, maybe ideology. Uh, what worries me, besides the fact that that's an upsetting statement, is, is one other point. The Food and Drug Administration, the National Institute of Health, the Center for Disease Control, and the U.S. Surgeon General's Office are all part of what branch of government? Executive branch. What department do they report into? Health and Human Services. Who appoints their secretary? Oh, the president does. That secretary sits on his cabinet. So now when I submit a grant, and I've written lots of grants to the NIH over many, many years, and I talk about life, and I talk about it starting at conception, what chilling effect does the president's statement have? Right? I mean, you want to go back four centuries to Galileo? Give me a break. Go back four months to the president of the United States. Cecil Richards, the former director of NOW, she has got a great one. Life begins when the mother says it does. Okay. You know, I think quantum transport in a semiconductor occurs when I say it does. Had I known that 30 something years ago, my whole dissertation defense would have been a lot easier. Okay? I just look at professor. It happens when I say it does. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, that would have gone over real well. Okay. So, um, I think that brings me to the end here. Um, again, it's, uh, I use that just as an example, abortion, because it's an incredibly divisive topic, but from a scientific standpoint, it's really, really, really straightforward to argue. And so, um, at this point, uh, I'd be happy to answer any other questions, or it's... Um, already 7.45-ish. Uh, some of you may need to be getting on to other things this evening. But thanks for your attention. And again, I'm happy to answer any questions you might have.